Today I welcome Dominic Randolph, Head of School at Riverdale Country School in New York. In this episode I discuss character education, diversity in leadership teams, the importance of research and development in schools, plus discover what an asset-based approach to education really means. I mean, the, the exciting thing is that you're actually our first USA head of school. No, I'm very we, excited. We, we, we've actually got, you know, we've got another 20 lined up, which is, which, which is fantastic. Cool. Um, I mean, and the, the, I don't know what, what briefing you've got with the podcast. I mean, the purpose of the podcast for me was I've done a lot of speaking myself. I have, I have strong views on the future school. Sure. You know, from, from, from a father point of view, I'm a, you know, uh, from a fatherly point of view, but also having gone around sure. lots and lots of schools around the world. Um, right. And also bringing experience from you know, understanding people, behavior, what the world wants. Um, and then when you kind of look into education, going, wow, is, is it really fit for purpose? And, you know, yeah. when I look at my four kids coming through, you know, what, what kind of education do I look for them? And sure. how does it shape? So I'm always really interested to, to speak to thought leaders for people that are challenging education. Yeah. Um, and it's really fantastic to, to have, you, have you on today. Yeah, it's um, great to be with you. You're a global leader in the international character education movement. Why is no. character education so important to you? Yeah, um, so, I mean, I think the thing is, is that I've seen, I think a lot of what we do is we measure in students their ability to do things verbally, you know, write an essay or handle data, you know, ma mathematical sort of problems. Those are the two sort of major ways that we measure human endeavor in schools. And I think that's actually really sort of impoverished view of humans. And so I guess I've always felt that that sort of slice of the pie that we are measuring and giving a lot of feedback around is sort of just a not very useful way of actually growing um, good citizens, good human beings. And so if you could broaden that pie, what type of capacities would you include? And I think you'd include things that are linked to character strengths, like, you know, being able to be honest, being able to be um, ethical, being able to think optimistically about things, being curious. Those are things that are deeply human. And yet, I don't know if we actually build them very well in schools, nor do we actually evaluate and give feedback to young people as they try to develop those things. It's just left to sort of like do however they want to do it. So I've been trying to push schools to think about what does it mean to have those human capacities and sort of human thriving at the core of a school rather than at the edges of what we do. Yeah, and do you, do you think the model of it, of character education is, is something that can be easily rolled out across all schools and particularly in America? I think it's, I mean, it's difficult in the States because I think the problem with the States is, you know, education is not even just at the state level, it's almost at the town level. So there is no sort of national approach to education. I actually think in countries that like the UK um, that have, you know, a national view of education or, you know, Australia has more of a regional view of education. I think those stand more of a chance of being able to do this in some ways well. Um, but I do think there's a natural inclination and people are interested in the idea of saying, okay, this should be a part of schools. And I think schools have said this for a long time, but I would, argue that I'm not sure that they do it in a very intentional way, nor do they do it informed by the science. And I think the science of sort of positive psychology of the development of character strengths has advanced pretty significantly, but those practices, that sort of research hasn't translated into practices in schools. And yeah. so I'm really interested to see how we could actually get people to pay attention to that science. 
Yeah, and and so do do you have more flexibility when it comes to you know, embedding that into a school and, and in into your education model um, yeah. with it within America as opposed to, you know in the UK we're very much tied to curricular models sure. um, and you can't really change it. Yeah, so I think that um, yes, certainly independent schools in the states have a lot of freedom and you're able to let's say craft your mission, craft the program. We do not have a lot of external pressures on us. We can really develop our own curriculum, our own program, and um, figure that out. I do think that, um, though I do push back on people say there's not really time for this, because I think actually this is, these type of things are things that you can embed within existing curricular structures. So it's really more of a shift of mindset. You know, if you're a good math teacher, you are actually teaching students to persist and persevere in doing a challenging, solving a challenging math problem, you are actually um, teaching a char character strength when you're doing that. When you're asking good questions or expecting your students to ask good questions in a class, whether it's an English class, whether it's a history class, that, that, that sort of expectation of question asking is developing their sense of curiosity. So I think it just is really more of a shift of our minds of saying, okay, there are ways that I can embed this within existing practices within a school. It's not a matter of saying, okay, I'm not going to study math. I'm not going to study chemistry. And instead we're going this. I think people sometimes view if a school focuses on character education, therefore the academic work must be, you know, not very good. I mean, I believe thriving, student thriving is a precondition for good learning, right? Any challenging activity, you need to be have a sense of well-being, a sense of that you're actually thriving in order to really perform well. And I don't understand why we don't privilege that in our schools. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I suppose a, a big part of that is is the the ability to measure impact. You know, because it's not like an exam; you can't see a, a, a you know a piece of artwork. You can't see something they've developed in the makerspace or whether it's in the sure. in the STEM lab. So, I mean, how do you reconcile? The sort of yeah. the, the impact piece. I mean, I think that the, you know, everyone looks for the, we, people have been searching all the time for assessments that basically like measure some development and growth and character strength. I mean, I think the, um, you know, and I worry a bit about that because I worry about, you know, are we going to have like optimism tutors or, you know, people who help you develop your self-control from when you're five years old in order to get into a kindergarten and in an independent school in New York City. Um, so I do worry a bit about that, but I think actually, um, I'm, I'm not sure, I sometimes think we overthink the assessment part of it. I think you can actually look at culture of schools and you can observe schools. I mean, many people um, around the world have, you know, inspectors that come into schools and look and accredit schools, and they observe lots of things about the academic program. Why can't they just observe behaviors of students linked to character strengths or the culture of the school? There are a lot of assets in schools that show what schools privilege. And I think we could actually be a bit more astute about observing those things and observing how that, how that culture of a school changes over time in positive ways. I, I think it is gonna be, you know, I'm not sure how easy it is to get that idea of a snapshot of someone's character, but you know, we don't really um, focus on growth over time in schools. And I think that if you look at students and you observe them, you see that, you know, a student who's 13 years old who comes into a sort of a high school and then leaves when they're 18. There's an amazing amount of growth there. It's just we're very bad at documenting what that growth actually is. But a lot of people are able to observe it and see it happen. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's almost a bit intangible, but it's a feeling. You see it. Yeah. You feel it. And if you're within that community, it's really, really obvious. Yeah. Um, and you've got to kind of obviously showcase that. 
you co-founded an organization called Character Lab. Um, why did you feel it necessary to, to set up something like that? Right. And what role does it play? Yeah, so, um, you know, Angela D Duckworth, who's, you know, at University of Pennsylvania, has, you know, worked closely with Marty Seligman, who's sort of the founder of positive psychology. Angela, uh, most of her work is on grit. That's what her book is entitled. Um, but, you know, she works on a variety of different character strengths. And I think the other person that helped found it was Dave Levin, who's the founder of the KIPP Charter School um, uh, movement in the United States. And I think that um, Angela, David, and I felt that even though we worked in different realms, a researcher, two sort of school practitioners, we needed really to figure out a way to take some of that research that's happening on a daily basis, even figure out ways to actually fund and uh, fund the type of research that could be helpful to schools, and then translate that into school practices. So Angela's been developing and her team, uh, Sean Talamus and her team there have been developing these playbooks that are really um, addressed at the teacher level to be able to say, okay, if I'm interested in developing more curiosity in my students, what can I learn about the science? And how can I actually, what moves can I make in my classroom to make my students think about curiosity and become more curious? And there's a variety of different playbooks out there. They're free resources for teachers, anyone can access them. So yeah. it's really about this idea of speeding up the translation of science into practice, basically. You focus on a scientific research to advise parents and teachers. Has any of your research findings completely shocked you or hugely altered your educational view? Yeah, um, you know, one of the studies we did, we did some studies at KIPP and at Riverdale earlier on. And one of the things that we found was that curiosity wasn't correlated with the, um, the, the grades that students got in their classes. And, you know, at first I was sort of like, that's shocking in some ways that, you know, people's actually, maybe their curiosity diminishes over the time that they're in school. And then when you think about it, it's sort of shocking to begin with, but then when you think about it, you understand that if you have such an emphasis on producing stuff all the time and never really taking any time to reflect and think about things, um, that sort of speed, that sort of busyness of school life probably does actually uh, affect one's ability to be curious or not. And so I think that was a finding that I think we sort of were stunned by, but um, has also made me think about like, how can we slow down school life, allow for more natural curiosity, and hopefully not, you know, lessen curiosity over the time of someone being at a school. Yeah, and the late Sir Ken Robinson was a big kind of Absolutely. driver of this, you know, the, the idea that, you know, creativity has got taught out of us, you yep, know, and, exactly. it, it, and it's a real shame. And in the UK, I think we suffer from it more because of the, the rigidness to the education model that we have. Um, right. At Riverdale, you've developed PLUS, a research centre with the aim of developing further understanding teaching strategies. Yeah. Tell me about this. So, um, you know, I've been sort of struggling trying to figure out how schools can become their own sort of research and development centers. You know, obviously, um, lots of in the corporate world, it's pretty common to have like skunks works, R&D centers, ways of thinking about how do you actually have an engine of innovation within your own organization. So um, I think it's, you know, it's not simple to do because, you know, obviously teachers and people are very, very busy and don't have time to necessarily rethink about their practices while they're ending up having to go through their curricular and, and run the school day. So we basically set up this sort of little consulting arm of Riverdale that does work outside of the school. 
but it also acts as a consulting sort of group within the school. So they help us think about strategy in the school, but they also work on projects outside. And you know, we've got uh, teachers involved in both sides of this, so internally and externally. Um, we've helped start up a school in Hanoi, um, Vietnam, and we're working on a school project in China. Um, and I think that it's, I, I think it's important for schools to both have this sort of internal capacity to develop themselves, but also be looking outside and always thinking about what is it like to, um, you know, do something somewhere else in the world. And I know a lot of schools have, you know, we're not trying to license Riverdale. I mean, and a lot of schools have figured out that sort of way of doing things is sort of a almost financial uh, benefit to them. Um, we're not as interested in that. We're more interested in this idea of how do you create this sort of innovation engine. And so that's what PLUS is basically for Riverdale. Really um, I can see the impact that PLUS has have, that, that it will have on Riverdale students. I think anything you can do to, to change the way that teachers are thinking and delivering education, I think it's got to be a real positive. Um, yeah. Should all schools develop R&D capabilities then? So that's, I mean, I, I sort of feel like, you know, one of the things that, um, everyone challenges schools is to think, okay, how can we develop people who have more of an entrepreneurial sort of mindset? Who um, and I and I think sometimes we get stuck on the word entrepreneur. I mean, not everyone's going to be an entrepreneur. Not everyone's going to run a startup. But I do think the mindset is really interesting. It is like, okay, if that's the mindset, we're we're not. It's not necessarily always startup. We're thinking about someone who's got agency in their own learning, agency in their own life who's able to rethink things, who's able to sort of think about, question their assumptions, and then rethink things and do something different. People who can take knowledge and transfer that into action out in the real world and solve real problems. I mean, I think all of those things are things that we want in schools. I'm just not sure there's enough models sometimes within schools for both faculty and students to understand what that means. And so actually setting up, I think, setting up startups within one school is a very good idea to be able to say, okay, we can model this. I mean, in some ways our, our computer science curriculum has, has evolved to basically have a sort of capstone program that's basically a startup program. It develops a team. Um, they have to develop a product. They have to figure out that product has to have some sort of positive social use. And then they um, try and actually produce it during a year and also get funding for it. And I think that type of modeling, that type of behavior, allowing students the freedom to be able to do that type of work in a school is really liberating and wonderful model for the school community. I agree. I think every school should be incubating um, start startup ideas um, because yeah. that, that is where the ideas really are. Probably their best um, because they're free of everything, but then they get to work within a structure. So you talked about funding, you talk about marketing, you talked about product development, exactly. you talk about all the bits that are connected with the real world. But to come up with an idea that you're passionate about is, yeah, again, it goes over time. Um, right. So, what should we be doing to plug more entrepreneurs into to schools? Do we need entrepreneurs in residence? Is that a thing? Oh. Um, I mean, yes, I think that can be helpful. I mean, I really do think actually doing the work is really good. And I think it doesn't have to be always connected. I mean, you know, we've done this thing of sort of seed funding of ideas that faculty have or that students have. You know, basically our activity program in some ways is a miniature venture capital program. 
So basically, you know, people propose an idea and then they have to propose a budget. And then we basically say, okay, we'll fund this one. We're not as keen on this one. Um, you know, come back next year and try and propose that. <laughs> and we've done that both at the, um, at the faculty level. We have these things called passion grants that um, people can apply for in the summer. And um, we have a, like a, an alumnus of the school that basically funded this program. And we give small grants, you know, a couple hundred bucks to uh, faculty to say, um, is there something that you'd like to do this summer? It doesn't have to be related to education. It can be like, I wanna, I've had people wanna learn about Thai cooking. Um, they wanted to do tango. Um, and all we've said is you have to share it back with the community in whatever way you feel comfortable with. And I think that type of idea of changing the mindset of, of feeling like, okay, you're not just being told what to do. You actually have real agency in, in what you do. Schools, unfortunately, are very disempowering places sometimes. Yeah. And I think we have to like give the power back to great teachers, great students, and make it more of a human endeavor. And so I think there's ways you can do it, uh, all sorts of different ways that you can do it, that you can get that change in mindset happening. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You also talk a lot about an asset-based approach to education. Sure. What are the advantages of an asset-based instruction and how does that differ from more traditional sort of deficit-based approaches? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I, I think that uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different views on this, right? So positive psychology and positive education or positive education sort of um, trying to translate positive psychology into action gets a bit dinged on saying it's all about like, you know, positive self-esteem and there's no like sort of, there's not the sort of hardness of objective sort of sense of things. Um, but I do think there's a lot of research that shows that if you can be more positive with young people, um, that they actually do better, that they'll perform better. It doesn't mean, I think sometimes it gets misinterpreted of saying all people are you know, concerned about is happiness and you know, just building up people's self-esteem. Everyone gets a prize. I, I think that's a misrepresentation of things. I think just if you have positive environments and positive contexts, I think, and you treat people in humane ways, I think people tend to just perform a lot better on things. And so I just think that's something that um, schools could, could shift to being much more positive about stuff and less focus less on trying to remediate negative things all the time, weaknesses. I think that, you know, um, yeah, I just really feel positive. I really feel that that's something that we just need to shift in schools. It doesn't mean that you can't ever say anything negative, but it does mean that you say, okay, be a bit more optimistic about young people, how they develop, build systems in the schools that make it fun and engaging to go to a school. I mean, sometimes you go, you know, I, I visit schools and sometimes it's sort of hard to see schools that really seems pretty like a negative place where I'm not sure you'd want to be. Why can't we just make schools sort of fun, joyous? Um, it's a fun endeavor actually learning and developing. And so why can't we make it more of an importantly fun way? I think the way that it's the way that it should be, you know? Yeah. The, I mean, the asset-based approach requires teachers to really know their students' strengths and weaknesses. That obviously takes time, and time in the classroom sure. is, is precious. Sure. Is this approach even possible in an environment of remote or hybrid learning? 
Um, you know, it's interesting because I have, I was on a, on a Zoom call with a bunch of people yesterday with some students and they were saying that um, there's a certain sort of proximity to Zoom that's different than dealing with people, um, even in groups, you know, you have like the, the boxes, but you actually get to see facial expressions and it's different than a classroom, but there's actually a proximity to it, a human proximity, that I think is actually really interesting. And so I do think it's possible to um, get to know people. I think that it, it, in schools and in Zoom and online and remote, I think that you have to make a real effort to sort of say, okay, fine, it's important to have time that's unstructured where you can do one-on-one -on -one work with a student. Um, and I know that, that you know, it always comes down to time. And I think we privilege um, time in ways in schools that I'm not sure is always productive. I think you can do a lot on a one-on-one -on -one session with someone that actually will make them feel really validated as a human being and really want to do well. Um, and it doesn't take more than like, you know, sort of five to 10 minutes, but that time has immense value in the long run. And I think, unfortunately, we don't privilege that time of really taking care of someone and thinking about them. And I actually think Zoom, I mean, you know, I'm looking at you right now. I can see what you think. I'm seeing what you're thinking, what you're, and I think that's really, really interesting. And I think we should take advantage of that, actually, that possibility of using this post-pandemic in schools as a means of connecting people as well. Yeah, I, I talk about kind of the, the future school and the idea that, you know, we're going to have super teachers that can inspire millions as opposed to sort of Absolutely. inspiring the few. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that a, is that a reality? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, certainly, you know, we've got this really monolithic idea of, you know, I have students here from, you know, sort of age five to age 18. And that's the Riverdale experience. And I think, you know, I view the Riverdale experience as being much more of a set of components that would actually mix with other components out there. And you sort of can create your own sort of bespoke education um, at a place like this. And that we would maybe be having adults and younger people, uh, sort of young adults come and engage in our community as well, maybe from around the globe. And it would be less this thing of you sitting in a classroom, this is it, but people sort of figuring out ways to compose and put together a sort of collage of an education that fits them personally. That's, I think, the, what the future will bring. And so I think educational institutions need to think about, okay, how can I start providing that? How can I provide elements of what I'm doing to other people? Um, it may not be the whole thing, and maybe some people will still go here for 12, 13 years, but I think other people will be hopping in for a bit of an experience, getting what they can, and then we have to figure out what we have to, the big problem is figuring out what does the credentialing look like? For that because I think that's but some of the universities are figuring this out and thinking about that right now and I think people are questioning you know do we spend four years in the university or do we connect professional experience with some courses and put that together in some sort of life curriculum vitae rather than just something that's you know over a few years yeah and it's yeah to me it's always about pick and mix you know why why yeah. not? I, I should be able to come and you know cherry pick and, and get a great kind of class Absolutely. Or topic from Riverdale. And likewise, I can go back to the UK, I can go to Hong Kong, you know, and you cherry pick it based on interest, but also skills, you know, what, what do I want right. to do? You know, what interests me? And actually, what do I need that's going to fuel my interest? And, right. you know, I don't need, necessarily need to go to a physical school. Obviously, so that's why I'm I, interested in, I'm very interested in this, how do schools and institutions and organisations think about developing a sense of purpose in young people? Because the research is really robust on that. 
And purpose is so influential on our life. And it's not like you have one purpose forever. You keep on iterating and refining and revising one sense of purpose. But I think that's something. And I think the other thing that you were sort of saying, yes, I totally agree with this connect, connecting different educational opportunities together in something. I think, how do you figure out the interoperability problem with that? You know, how do you make something um, that could be put together with different elements feel like a whole yeah. and make people understand that whole? That telling that story of one's education is going to be an interesting challenge. But I think it's really possible given the technology we have and the ability to be able to document and credential things in maybe very different ways than we currently do. Too many schools, I feel, franchise. And it's, and it's a revenue opportunity and oh. there's, there, there is no higher educational benefit to anybody. Um, right. What are your thoughts on the franchise model and should we be doing more to promote education and access to good education around the world? Right. I, you know, I guess the thing is, look, I work in an independent school. It's a very privileged environment. We are fortunate that we, you know, try and we have about 20% of our students who are on financial aid and we bring in students of different socioeconomic levels into the school and different backgrounds to the school. Um, but I think these schools, like independent schools for me, are, are the, have the possibility of being labs given the capacity we have to do interesting things and some of the freedom we have to do things. I, you know, I believe that we should be able to make high fidelity sort of assets available to the world. So if we develop a program, oftentimes that program is very particular to that school. But what happens if you develop things that actually have real relevance to the world? And why wouldn't you then share those things with the world? So, you know, we developed a, a, a sort of two different mini curriculums that are actually, they're used a bit at Riverdale, but they're mainly used outside the Purpose Project and this thing called NXU, which is about developing a sense of purpose in young people. And they're freely available online. I mean, one of them you have to like, there's some charge for, but one of them, Purpose Project, is free online. And you can access those materials and think about like, Okay, is that something that a school's interested in doing? I think schools need to play a role in saying, we're like great content producers, but we need to be able to produce content of a high fidelity that other people can use. And I think we need to start doing that more in schools and sharing that more broadly so that we can all think about, okay, what are those leverages that will actually shift the system? No one thing is gonna shift these large educational systems globally, but I think there are ideas that go into a system and then sort of almost cause a viral response. It's probably not a good metaphor these days, but cause some sort of response in that system and then change the system. So I think schools need to be playing with that sort of currency of global currency of ideas, taking ideas, playing with them back there and then sharing back with the world. I think that's something that um, would, I think engages students, I think engages faculty members um, playing that type of role. And I don't think, I think schools need to move more actively in that role and it doesn't you know to be honest it, it's true like we have a lot of ability to be able to do that type of stuff but i don't think you can do this stuff with very little funding it doesn't take massive amounts of funding to take an idea and make it real in the world you just create a website anyone can create a website and put an idea out there and see if it actually has some value to others yeah um cultural diversity is is a big topic we had the joy george, george floyd that went past America, went around the world, and has had a massive impact with Black Lives Matter. Um, yeah. Making class, the classroom more culturally responsive is a big part of, 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 of an approach to, to changing education. Uh, how is that possible when eight out of 10 teachers are white? 
Yeah, I mean, we are very, so we've been working very actively to diversify the student body at the school, and it takes more time to diversify the, 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 the faculty and staff at the school. And we've been really working on changing that. Um, and I think you have to make an active decision on the part of the school that you're gonna say, okay, we are going to expand and change the way that we think about hiring, um, recruiting people, and also sustaining people within the school. Because um, I think the other thing is, is that, um, faculty members of, of diverse races in school end up being, you know, they're, 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 they tend to be a minority and they tend to be a minority that have this sort of unofficial job of mentoring other students of different racial backgrounds in the school. And so I think you need to figure out the right way to sustain um, people like that in schools as well. So we are actively in some ways changing and being much more open to people who have different backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different experience backgrounds that can come into a school. As we focus more on, in some ways, more experiential education, more connection of the academic program to the real world, that allows you in some ways, which I think a lot of us want to do in schools, that allows you to bring people in who have very, very different experiences. And that's a great learning experience for everyone. Great learning experience for me, for other faculty members. So I think you have to just make an active decision and commitment to saying that's just going to be the way that we're going to do things. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose the the big thing we need to then talk about next is just labour pool, because it's, it's one thing wanting a diverse faculty. It's one thing wanting a diverse community. But if, you know, the diverse the, the diverse backgrounds are not going into those jobs, how can you possibly represent it? Is, right. is there an issue with the labor pool with teachers in I, America? I mean, we have not found that, to be honest. I mean, I think that, um, you know, probably if you were, went back a few, few more years, there was a sort of not much of an interest of people going into education. And interestingly, I think now more young people are considering education. We have an interesting also uh, fellows program with the University of Pennsylvania, where we bring in young teachers to the school to sort of have an apprenticeship within the school. So I think there's also systems that you can um, think about doing that also bring young people, attract them to education, to think about education. So, you know, recent years, I think that education, you know, oddly has been, um, you know, in the news, sometimes negatively. And so you sort of wonder if that causes people to say, okay, I'm not gonna go to schools. I actually weirdly feel like in the States, it's actually attracted people to, um, to teaching. And so that's, I think, been a positive thing for us. Yeah. It seems schools in the USA either try to be colorblind or think acknowledging holidays and cultural traditions is enough to teach diversity. How can schools go further? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we have, um, we have uh, two directors of what we call directors of diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. And um, they work on a number of different fronts. But I think the, the idea that um, they are very focused on things like helping us think about hiring and recruiting. Um, they are very focused on working with departments to think about the curricula within the departments and the makeup of even um, you know academic departments at the school. So I think um, you know I, I think I think there can be a tokenism to this work that is problematic, and the deep work is really really difficult. It demands like changes of uh, uh, changes of like perspectives, changes of let's say one's knowledge base, 
And, you know, so there's a big, big, you know, amount of work that's on basically sort of professional development of the faculty um, in regard to this, to be able to think about, okay, how do you advise people of very different cultures? Do you have the cultural fluency to understand um, what it means to be dealing with different cultures in a setting like a school? And this is deep, hard work that is going to take a long time because it challenges some of the assumptions a lot many of us were brought up with. Yeah. And so you can figure out like, okay, how do you provide space for that? How do you also provide space? I think sometimes we can have uncomfortable discussions and then everyone goes, oh my God, we don't want to have another discussion like that because get, one gets wary of that. I think you actually have to persist in having those very difficult, uncomfortable discussions and question assumptions in good ways and allow for open discourse around this, which I think is not simple um, because, uh, you know, on one side, I think it's sometimes very difficult subject matter to know how to approach and know how to talk about. And then at the same time, I think there is, there can be um, a, a fear in saying, okay, if I say something wrong, then I'm going to yeah. get, you know, nailed. And so I think that's something that we have to figure out how to find that right balance of, you know, sort of um, being able to uh, deal with difficult subjects and then not necessarily uh, jump on people if they make the wrong they they make yeah mistake. exactly and I think that that's the point you know it, it, we're learning we're discovering and there is this, this the, the the anxiety about saying the wrong thing the wrong term yeah. the wrong yeah. acronym the wrong everything and it's just that then then you don't say anything and so you're not changing anything at all yeah. um final question for you how do you manage to do all of this work found all those different organizations stay focused stay passionate be the head of a school and find time for Dominic and family. <laughs> well, it helps that my uh, my daughter's thirty one years old, so that that helps <laughs> a great deal. I'm not sure. I can't I can't actually empathise with people who have young children any longer. I don't think. Um, but uh, that's one thing. And I but, but I do think that there's a sort of um, if you can set up the right context in a place, I think that there is. Um, a lot of willingness of my team and the, the big number of people I work with to sort of engage in that work together. So I don't think it's actually that much related to me. I think there's more of like a context and there's a load of other people who then are really excited about doing some of this work. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on the board of the Character Lab. I you know, talk to people at the Character Lab a lot, but there's a, there's a whole team of people doing that work every day. And I think it's just great to, it's sort of amazing what you can actually um, catalyze and help catalyze um, if you have the right people and some of the and, and some interesting ideas to engage in. So um, I actually feel like it's relatively reasonable. I have to say the pandemic, you know, during the pandemic, it's been hard because I think I have probably been more engaged um, in a rightful way in like, you know, day to day dealing with things like, you know, a positive case of COVID that comes in the school. And sort of that day-to-day -day running of the running of the school, but I'm hopeful that you know once we, you know, I'm hopeful this spring and moving forward with the vaccine and that that we'll be able to get back to thinking more strategically about education in the long run. So. Yeah, your, your your passion absolutely shines through. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you for your time. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Simon. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.